You are listening to Climate Now, a weekly podcast that delves into the scientific ideas, technologies, and policies that will help us address the global climate crisis and reach a net zero future. I'm your host, James Lawler, and today we'll be looking at some decarbonization solutions that might hit close to home, or rather, could be in your home and your office. I'm talking about ways that we can reduce the emissions that come from the heating, cooling, and electrification of our buildings. And there's a lot of opportunity for emissions reductions in this space. Residential properties alone are responsible for between 17 and 21% of energy-related carbon emissions globally. And in the US, commercial buildings generate over 800 million metric tons of CO2 emissions every year, which is the equivalent of about 2 trillion miles traveled in a regular gas-powered car, and is over 10% of total US CO2 emissions. So what are the levers that can be pulled to decarbonize these spaces? Today, we'll learn about two companies that are helping customers reduce the energy they use in homes and workplaces the result of which is a reduction in both monthly energy costs and carbon footprints. Later in the episode, we'll be talking with CEO Jeff Hendler and Senior Product Marketing Manager Zora Roy of the company Logical Buildings. Through data and smart technology, Logical Buildings aims to empower users to make economical and environmentally productive choices about their energy use. Right now, do you know how much electricity costs? No idea. Do you know how how carbon-intense If you had that information, though, wouldn't you be more empowered? But first, we'll speak with Andy Frank, who is founder and president of a company called Sealed, which helps homeowners finance and contract energy efficiency upgrades. At least 40% of the climate challenge can be met by stopping energy waste, and that really starts in our homes. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. How did you get involved in energy efficiency in residential buildings in the first place? The thing that's always motivated me in starting Sealed and even before that is that home efficiency and electrification is really the largest unaddressed climate opportunity, in my mind at least. And that's why I've invested uh, most of my career in this sector. I've seen uh, seen a lot in this space. And frankly, uh, most of what I've seen in my career in getting to this point is what doesn't work. And there's been a lot of attempts at, at different models. And the reason that I'm, I'm very excited about what we're doing here at Sealed is because I think we're coming together with a model that has the potential to really scale. And that's a direct-to-consumer approach to getting around a lot of the big challenges that have proved kind of especially uh, gnarly. We've heard you know, for a while that energy efficiency is this huge lever that we have to decarbonize. And we've also historically underestimated how efficient we can get. So it's arguable, you know, arguably the energy efficiency lever is bigger than we even think it is. But people have heard of solar energy, they've heard of wind and are excited about those things. It's much harder, it seems, to get people excited about energy efficiency. How do you make energy efficiency appealing to people? How do you make that sale? So the the first thing you do, which is simplifies the whole question, is you don't sell energy efficiency right? That is not something that, that generally appeals to people. We found it sealed, similar to the old uh, Fight Club line. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of selling energy efficiency is you don't really talk about energy efficiency. Um, you talk about comfort, health, safety. You really focus on the things that, that people um, care about and can feel and can be tangible. And that's actually really, really powerful and does something that renewable energy can't really do, right? If I put solar panels on my house, that's great. And I may 
lower my electricity bill and I may feel great about having green power, but I'm not going to be more comfortable in my home or I'm not going to be warmer in the winter or cooler in the summer. And so that's really the, the big focus that we have in terms of selling energy efficiency. And it may sound obvious, but I can guarantee to you that's still the mentality of selling energy efficiency by focusing on reducing your energy usage or reducing your energy bill is still the conventional wisdom in this market. And that's a big reason that this market has been held back for the last 50 years or so. So maybe you could unpack that a little bit for us, because I think it is, to your point, fairly counterintuitive that one can reduce one's energy bill, but actually improve on the energy services that we're getting, like warmth, like cool, these various things. So how does that actually work? Yeah, so our goal with everything that we do is to provide more comfort with less energy, with pretty off-the-shelf technology, right? We're talking weatherization, heat pumps, which have been around for many years, they've become more efficient in the last few years, smart thermostats, things that, that both reduce the amount of energy that leaks out of your home and therefore makes you more uncomfortable. So if you have a drafty home, for example, right? My, my home recently got sealed before it was, we was it was a nightmare, right? We were walking around with slippers all the time, had to go to bed with a couple layers that we were wearing all the time, had to choose right which bathroom we would go to depending on the outside temperature. It really affects how you live. And the core cause of that was because we weren't really living in the inside to the full extent, right? A big part of the outside was inside our, our building shell. So just doing the simple things like weatherization to keep the outside out is a big driver of not only comfort, but also energy waste. I wonder if you could describe in a typical residential home, what the levers are when it comes to energy efficiency, how do the sort of improvements typically rank in terms of the value that they contribute to energy reductions in a typical home? The first thing to really understand is a lot of these improvements work together. Maybe the best example is weatherization and heat pumps. So heat pumps don't perform nearly the level that they should if you're working in a leaky home. Basically, you want a tight envelope. You don't want a big hole in your wall in general. <laughs> yeah, holes in walls are bad. You know, if you, if you add up all of the air leaks in, a, in an average home, it's like keeping a big window open all year round, right? So imagine having that open. It just, you're wasting a lot of energy. It's just, it's like a, it's like a sieve. And so your, your heat pump in particular has to work so much harder if you have all of those leaks. So therefore, it's not going to be nearly as efficient as it would be if you're working in a properly weatherized home. So all that said, though, really the number one thing you can do if you're focusing on energy waste is to put in heat pumps of some kind, right? We're, we're wasting an incredible amount of energy today with our heating and our cooling systems. And that's because we have a limit with traditional fossil systems of about 100%, right? In other words, one piece of, uh, of energy that you're putting in is at best giving you one piece of useful heat energy or useful cooling energy on the other end. But with heat pumps, you can be up to three times more efficient than traditional fossil um, systems because you're not creating heat, you're just moving it. So it's almost like a little magic trick that we have. So you can get to 300% or more efficiency depending on the technology and depending on where you are, which can dramatically cut your energy and, and carbon footprint. Could you explain that, Andy? I'm not sure I fully understand that. So, you, you know, the, how do you get be, beyond 100% efficiency? I'm not sure I, I tracked. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not breaking the laws of thermodynamics. I, uh, okay, it's, it sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is why it's, again, the closest thing we probably have to magic in the energy efficiency and electrification space. 
basically, when you're thinking about heating or cooling your home, again, you don't care about the amount of energy that's used. You care about the amount of heating units or cooling units that are coming into your home. So there's a lot of different metrics you can use. The one I love to, to cite is coefficient of performance. So in other words, if I put a unit of energy in, how many units of heating or cooling am I getting out the, the, other, the other end? Right. And a unit of heating, would that just simply be the delta between sort of what the heat, what the heat is in the house before you turn the heater on and the heat after? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can translate it into what units, energy units you want. You can think of it all as BTUs at the end of the day, but yeah, that's exactly, conceptually, that's exactly right. And so when, when you're combusting something inside your home, right, you may have one BTU of oil, for example, right, that you're, that you're burning at best, if you do a really great job of turning that into an efficient heat source, you're getting another one unit of heat on the other end. Now in practice, it's usually somewhere between, you know, 75 and 95% because there's, there's, there's line losses and other, other combustion losses, but that's kind of the best you can do. But with, again, this is the magic trick with heat pumps. You're not actually using the energy that you're, that, that that's being generated for the heat pump. So in this case, you know, electricity to actually produce the heat. What it's doing is it's it's leveraging refrigerants inside the heat pump to be able to attract heat from the outside. So one thing that I think most people don't appreciate is that there's always uh, warm air outside, um, even when it's very, very cold. So now with better technology like cold climate heat pumps, you're able to take the, the warm air molecules, even when it's very, very cold, out of the outside and attract them through refrigerants inside. And you don't need that much energy relative to traditional fossil systems, right? To attract that heat to go inside. So beyond heat pump and weatherization, it sounds like those are the, the two big things that you focus on. By what percentage does would that typically reduce someone's, and I know it's the, the concept of an average home is probably a little <laughs> bit problematic because they're so varied, but what kind of you know efficiency improvement would you expect to achieve with those two improvements. Yeah. So those two, and I should have mentioned also um, heat pump water heaters, which again, is a similar technology, but for your hot water heating needs, that's another, another big piece of the puzzle, but putting those three things together, order of magnitude is about 50%. So, you know, it depends on the home. It be, could be less than that. could be more than that, depending on how well of a job you're able to do with, with those different elements, but it's a lot, right? We're not talking little percentages here and there. We're talking about dramatically reducing both your energy and your carbon footprint when you, when you put these improvements in. So I'd love to transition to the business model at Sealed to understand, you know, a little bit better what the relationship is between Sealed and your customer. So one of the big challenges in this space is, is really education, right? People know the problems that they have. They don't necessarily connect the solutions to those problems. So the first thing we'll do is kind of educate you and help you really understand that those drafty rooms that you have are being caused not by your windows necessarily, but probably by the poor attic insulation that you have in your upstairs. The next thing we'll do is we'll actually help gather the information that we need to scope a project. So unlike the traditional approach where the first step is an in-home energy audit, which can be you know, long and expensive and be a hassle, we actually scope your entire project remotely based on the information that you give us, as well as third-party uh, tools and technology. So we'll actually take all that information that you have about your home, We'll cross-reference that with property records, with Google Maps, with other tools, and we'll be able to actually give you a proposal 
on what we think you should do to your home. And we'll show you the full financing proposal. Um, then we connect you with a local contractor, oftentimes many contractors. And this is one of, I think, the key challenges with this space is that to really decarbonize a home, to weatherize it and electrify it in particular, you have to work typically with more than one contractor based on the project that you're doing. So we're helping to find not just the best contractors, but also make sure that they're coordinating and working together. And then after the project is complete, we'll actually pay the contractors upfront for that work. And then what really makes us special, or one of the things that makes us special is that the payment back to us is completely performance-based. So you only pay sealed if you're a sealed customer based on the amount of um, energy waste that we're actually able to, to cut and reduce. And so we really want to create a, you know, create a partnership with our customers to be able to make this easy as well as affordable. Beyond servicers providing financing options designed to ease the burden of upfront costs for consumers, Andy talked about the role of public policy. I think one of the more under underappreciated policy levers that we have in the in the clean energy and the climate fight, to give you a sense of sense of scale, internationally, globally, energy efficiency appliance standards have reduced the same amount of energy as all wind and solar has produced. Yeah, it's crazy. That statistic is nuts. And it's so powerful. And you think, I mean, we could probably do much, much better even, right? Absolutely. The craziest part to me is I think a lot of people have a mistaken notion that performance standards are anti-business or anti-market, when I would say the opposite is true, right? They send a really clear signal to the market about what needs to happen. And it gets investment to, to occur. It, you know, it creates activity. It creates a really a North star for where the industry needs to, needs to go. The Biden administration right now is looking at a number of different appliance standards for heating and cooling and, and, and a number of other areas. But one thing that they're not looking at is actually going beyond 100%, right? So they have essentially standards for um, furnaces and boilers, um, that at best will get you to 100%. Again, they probably would never go that they high. Probably, they probably don't know that they could go beyond 100%. <laughs> they need to listen well, to this podcast and, and then exactly, that's Exactly, possible. all you performance standards nerds out there, listen to Climate Now. Um, but they're viewing it as two separate things. They're also looking to regulate our performance standards over heat pumps that they should be ex-efficient. But there's this big you know, mismatch there because one thing is in one sense, exactly the same as the other in terms of they both do heating and cooling, but they're not being put in the same bucket. What we think would make the most sense from a policy prescription is to do similar to what the transportation industry did with CAFE standards. So with CAFE standards, you have a, a fleet-wide average that you need to hit. And if you don't hit that, you have to buy credits from somebody else. So the Biden administration could do a similar thing for the HVAC, for the heating and cooling industry. And that would also mean it's a lot easier for the existing manufacturers and OEMs to transition from a world today where most of what's sold is, in the heating side at least, is, is fossil heat to one in which almost all of it is sold in, in electrification. And this is happening fast, right? If you look at Europe, obviously driven by the tragedy that's happening in, in the war in Ukraine, you're having countries now that are talking about completely changing their heating mix from, from natural gas to heat pumps in the span of, of a couple of years, right? In terms of replacement of existing appliances. So I think this is all happening very fast in the market as a whole. And really for the U.S. to retain our competitiveness and to make sure that as much of that innovation happens here in the U.S. as opposed to other parts of the world, we really need to, to push the market through performance standards. Andy, thank you so much for your time today. It was really a lot of fun to learn about Sealed, your journey and energy efficiency in the residential market. So 
thank you again for, for joining us on Climate Now. Thanks, James. Sealed is providing an impressive service, helping people reduce emissions one house, one building at a time. Our next guests come from a company taking a data-centric approach. Logical Buildings uses smart building software to collect and provide data to some of the nation's largest multifamily and commercial real estate managers. Those data give property managers and owners the ability to make informed choices that help reduce energy use. They also have an app designed for consumers that we'll get into later. We start our conversation with CEO of Logical Buildings, Jeff Hendler, who lays out the history and the process of getting electricity to and from the grid and to the consumer, and why this industry has been so slow to innovate, even as new technologies develop that could provide cleaner, cheaper energy to consumers and actually improve grid resiliency. Let's talk about electricity. How, how is it you know, created? It's really interesting. The conventional way is taking copper wire, putting it on, around a magnet, and spinning it, right? So how do you spin the magnet, right? I mean, I could be a gerbil and spin it, right, and get on my bike and go around and spin it. I could get a windmill, and that could spin it. I could get solar energy that through a, you know, a thermochemical type of reaction can create uh, its own power and not have to spin the magnet. That's another way to just get around that problem. Or I could use, I could burn things, burn coal. I could use nuclear rods, and, and that, that will heat up water to create steam to move the turbine. Now, what, what's most fascinating about electricity is that you can't store it in a massive way. Coal, oil, natural gas, you could, you could touch it, you could put it somewhere, you know, you could take it out when you need it. Electricity is a function of other items, whether it's a function of the sun or the wind, or it's a function of water moving, or it's a function of fossil fuels. It in itself is, is more abstract. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You don't want to touch it, right? But you always need it. We're completely relying on it, and we take it for granted. That in its own right creates a lot of practical issues. How do I deal with a commodity that everybody needs and be able to provide a mechanism of allocating that resource in a logical fashion, in an economical fashion, in an equitable fashion, in an environmental fashion? The first steps towards that is calibration, being able to measure what it is. So all utilities at first had analog meters that just provided monthly reads. There was no calibration of how much you were utilizing electricity, you know, down to the hour, down to the minute. But what the fact is, in the wholesale market of utilities and power producers, there are pricing mechanisms actually down to five minutes that are providing clearing prices of what power plants should be dispatched at a given time to create a functioning grid. Can you go a little deeper into that? Because we've had a couple different people in different conversations try to paint this picture of how power is purchased and dispatched and then ultimately arrives at the consumer's, you know, light switch. Would you mind just sort of painting that picture for us? Yeah. So, you know, the natural way the market evolved was on the wholesale side, because originally since the time of Edison, it was completely vertical monopoly. It was generation, transmission, distribution, a central plant with wires delivering it to the home. 
And as the market realized that that wasn't an efficient market, it didn't provide any pricing signals, a lot of waste and of resources, a lot of duplication. It didn't incentivize innovation. So for the utility, the first piece they got out of was a generation piece because that was really truly a commodity that if you would provide a market mechanism and a market design of transparency of information, that was the beginning of what they call the ISO market, the independent system operator, which mm-hmm. has regulation of the, of the FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They mm-hmm. set the rules. So there's like a federal tariff, how those operate, mm-hmm. of what gets dispatched, and how energy is priced. Capacity is another piece of that component. And basically, capacity is basically a payment to generation companies to be there in case needed. So I like to give an example of a table at a restaurant can sit 10 people, right? And there might be one time during the year that you only need 10 people. Well, you still have to pay that capacity of having a table of 10 people, even though it might be used once out of the entire year. That, and that's a conundrum of the electric industry, and but that's a cost, and that has to someone has to pay for it to make this, to to make the system work, and that's called capacity. That also has a transparent market mechanism and a wholesale market, and then the every hour, what's actually which plant is dispatched that determines the price of a kilowatt hour for that for that hour, the kilowatts for that hour, and depending you know as demand rises and more generation has to be created, the less economical machines come online. So first right. it starts with the nuke and hydro, the clean stuff that's cheap. And then you get to the, the more costlier fossil fuel. You don't have that calibration and transparency to the end user. Right. To have, they should have those, those same market pricing signals, especially today. I mean, how do you manage your, your energy? Right. Most people, if I say, do you manage your energy from your meter? No hands really go up. Do you manage your energy from your thermostat? Yeah, mm-hmm. most people could say, yeah, that's, that's where their hands go up. And how do they manage their energy? Well, I'm too hot or I'm too cold. Right. Zero, zero information about the market. How, right now, do you know how much electricity costs? No or, idea. Or, or do you know how, how carbon intense the, no. the, the power is? It, it, might be, it might be cheap, but maybe it's high. It might be carbon intense. So if you had that information, though, right, then wouldn't you be more empowered to make decisions that are, A, better for your bottom line? Because, oh, it's really expensive now. I'm going to wait to run the laundry or the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. or I'm not going to charge my electric vehicle right now. If I have electric heat in the house, right, well, maybe, and I have solar, it would be nice if I had a battery, which now is available for, for the home or the you know, an apartment size type of unit that could contain some loads. So I could, I could draw off that to smooth out my profile, so to speak. So when there's high demand times or the price is higher, I won't be exposed to that. I have no sense today, if I don't have those devices, a smart meter, or I don't have smart load control devices, Mm -hmm. I don't have any sense of what my exposure to the market is or what I can do about it. They don't see, you know, what their usage is at those times to even for themselves to learn, oh, like, you know, when I'm running different appliances during the day and or I'm cooking things, how much energy really is that, right? And, and what is the cost associated with that? And also what's the emissions, the carbon emissions associated with that? And, and that's where we, we stepped in 
a couple of years ago to bring that transparency. Thank you, Jeff, for laying, laying the landscape out. So I'd love to now transition to logical buildings and the, the business model that you guys have set up. Sure. I mean, I'll start on a high level. You know, we, we started with a B2B product of servicing. We actually started servicing a, a property asset class, multifamily buildings. It turned out multifamily buildings are the biggest consumers of electricity and, and, and energy, natural gas, and carbon the biggest carbon emitters in metropolitan regions. We first focus on the common areas of those buildings, the elevators, the hallways, the rooftop units, the AC units, the backup generator, you know, taking all this market information of what's happening behind the scenes on the ISO, those mm-hmm. pricing signals, making that relevant to the building operators of those buildings. Uh-huh. Because that was like the first lowest hanging fruit type of implementation and demonstration that if an end user, this being the building manager of a massive building, say 300 units, if he had that information and he's able to react to it by pre-cooling or preheating or testing his generator at times when the grid could benefit from that and show that there's a cost reduction, show there's an emissions reduction, show that he could actually provide a service to the grid through demand response and earn payments, then we prove the theory of our case, and that is if it can empower someone, time of use energy information and protocol guidance of what to do when, then yeah. we can make an impact. But is the ISO data public? Like, how do you have access to those signals? And then B, how would you be able to circumvent the utility? Because doesn't the utility sit between the ISO and that building owner? So the good news is, is that that information is public. We happen to be a member of the ISO. Um, that helps we understand what we need to pull, mm-hmm. you know, where to look yeah. and what the rules are and what, what's impactful. We're also a, a federal utility, meaning that we have registration as a power marketer. So it mean, means that we can transact on the wholesale energy, ancillary, and, and capacity markets. And those are important data points that yeah. we want to know. If you as an end user can prove that you don't need that many KW to, to manage your home. Like remember I mentioned 10 seats at the table as capacity. Well, what if you only need three seats at the table? Mm-hmm. And you could prove that. And how would you prove that? Well, if I had a smart meter, I could prove that, mm-hmm. you know, from the utility because they would measure and verify that. Well, then I should only pay for three seats because mm-hmm. that's all I need. And I, and I have the capability to prove that. So we, right. we did that for buildings in the case of New York City with Con Ed, that they want to rate case that they were now providing smart meters that we elected to put into a building for just the, the, the common area, one meter, that they're going to now put smart meters for every single resident and every single retail tenant on the street, like the Starbucks, Dwayne Reed, Walgreens, all these different you know, street level type of providers you see everywhere will now have the same type of calibration of their energy utilization. Question is, can they see it? Question mm-hmm. is, can they react to it? Right. Are they providing some type of program? Is because the data, that data from those smart meters is, is for the benefit of the utility more than it is for the end user in, in that current context. Well, well that's, that's what we're trying to bring education at. It's the benefit of everybody. Right. You know, you know, it, it, you know it, it, it started out, again, from Thomas Edison. It, it really is true. It, it, it's one of the last industries 
to get on board with a new era of digitization, right. decentralization. And you need those two if you want to really do decarbonization. So what does all this look like for the user? Zora Roy, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Logical Buildings, joins to lay it out. For the B2B side, which Jeff touched a lot about with our multifamily clients, our commercial clients, industrial clients, we have a product called SmartKit AI, which essentially is a virtual power plant software and solutions program. And this is an integrated technology that is helping building owners and operators combat climate change, also empowering their residential and commercial tenants to earn money, enhance building health, and reduce their carbon footprint while also achieving ESG goals. So to go back to the concept of smart meters, uh, these AMI um, meters are unlocking trillions of data points that can be accessed through our products and allow building owners and operators to make decisions based on the insights that are provided in our software tools. We also have a technology team that does installs and can help sort of create a smart building holistic view of your portfolio and make decisions to help you know, reduce your energy costs through energy efficiency measures and then what you call a demand response aggregator. So we work with utility, utilities like Con Edison, where during times when the grid is stressed or peak demand, we can work with our clients to reduce their electricity usage during these times and then earn revenue through the utility. So I want to see if I understood correctly. Let's say that I'm a building owner. I can come to logical buildings and to begin, your technology team could install smart meters and you could also sell me your technology So your software, a subscription to your software, which would allow me to visualize all of the data that's streaming off the smart meter to better understand my energy use patterns and the costs that are associated with those use patterns so that I could then maybe adopt more cost-effective use patterns going forward? Yeah, so one correction is that the utilities will install the smart meters and will come in and plug into that data. Oh, I see. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Logical Buildings is an integrator. We work with existing utility, you know, hardware. We work with existing connectivity infrastructure. So if you're, you know, Verizon, Comcast, you know, whoever you are out yeah. there, we'll work with you on that because connectivity is a, you know, prerequisite to success. So, Zora, what is Grid Rewards and how does that connect to everything we've just talked about? Sure, yeah. So, Grid Rewards is a B2C product that we launched. It's still fairly new. It was launched in spring of 2021, and it's really the first personalized energy carbon intelligence and revenue generating software that can be accessed by small energy users. So, everything that we've been talking about so far has been you know, larger commercial buildings, multifamily, larger energy users. And so what Grid Rewards does is it helps these small energy users leverage the same sort of data insights through these secure integrations that Logical Buildings has worked with. So essentially what Grid Rewards does is it helps empower 
as New Yorkers and now um, folks in California as well do their part to help reduce, you know, dirty power plants from coming online and also save some cash. So how does that work? Folks can download the application and go through a very simple uh, setup process and then they'll have access to hourly level down to 15 minute intervals information on how much energy you're using in your home, your apartment, and what that cost is and how carbon intense that is. And then similar to the demand response opportunities that are larger, uh, clients have access to grid rewards users have the ability to also take part in these peak demand events. So typically in the summertime, you know, Con Edison will call a few demand response events when the grid is, is stressed and they'll ask energy users to lower their consumption rather than turn on more power plants to meet the demand. And so what, this is what we call a virtual power plant. So through logical buildings, we're able to activate all of our energy users, whether they be large or small, to shift their usage. And that's the movement that we're calling Shift the Power, where thousands and thousands of people and buildings are joining together to stop some of the dirtiest power plants from running. What is the total emissions reduction potential of your technology? Well, you know, emissions really is a construct, it's a metric based on usage. You know, all, all emission calculations are, are starting with like, well, how much energy are you reducing? Which is the source of the emissions? Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, twenty percent reductions of of energy usage, just as, like out of the gate. You know, a twenty percent reduction in emissions—that's pretty impactful. Now, you know, going into the summertime, actually the percentage is higher because there's a lot more usage. So we you know, we've seen apartments that reduce fifty percent of of their emissions, and because there's just more higher carbon content in the summertime because of the generation creating that load. We see it's going to be incredibly significant, and we already have the data to back it up. Thank you, Jeff and Zora, for joining us and teaching us about what you're doing at Logical Buildings. And thanks again to Andy Frank for joining us to talk about how Sealed is retrofitting homes to be more energy efficient. That's it for today's podcast. If you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or colleague. If you have a comment for us, email us at contact at climatenow.com or leave us a review. Connect with us on social media. However you'd like to get in touch, we'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next conversation. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org. 